crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and I'll be your host for today's program. And today we'll be covering the final two tribes in our series on the modern identity of the 12 tribes of Israel. For today's program, we'll be looking specifically at the tribes of Simeon and Levi. As we've been covering on this program, there's some really interesting biblical history and prophecy relating to each of the separate so-called lost tribes of Israel, not just Israel as a whole. And so as we've been going through these programs and looking at, th- at these tribes of Israel, what became of the lost tribes of Israel after their invasions and deportations? The Bible prophesies that these tribes would be on the world scene and would be recognizable right up until the last days. So they must be on the scene somewhere. For our new listeners, let's lay a little groundwork to begin the program as we do uh, for the series. In the 10th century BCE, during the reign of King Rehoboam, the northern ten tribes split off and become known as the northern kingdom of Israel, the Israelites, while the remaining tribes ruled by Rehoboam from Jerusalem became the southern kingdom of Judah or the Jews. So while all the tribes can be collectively referred to as Israelites, only those of the kingdom of Judah were identified as Jews, a short form of the tribal name Judah. So the Jews of today are almost exclusively descendants of the southern kingdom of Judah. So what happened to the major part of Israel, the other Israelite tribes. Now, during the 700s BCE, the ten-tribed nation of Israel was conquered and they were taken captive by the Assyrians. The Bible describes them being deported by Assyria up as far as northern Iran, and then the biblical record stops. They become lost to worldview. They become none from this point on as the lost ten tribes. Where did they go? The Bible prophesies, again, about each of these tribes of Israel, and that's in Genesis 49, a key prophetic passage about each of these sons of Jacob, what each tribe would look like in the, quote, last days. Verse 1 reads, quote, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Jacob then proceeds to describe the specific types of people and nations that each tribe would become in the end time. Again, according to Bible prophecy, these tribes must be on the scene somewhere. At Watch Jerusalem, we often point our readers to our free book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. Uh, This book traces what happened to the lost tribes of Israel, how they became lost, where they went, and where they are today. And in this book, written by Herbert W. Armstrong, uh, he shows that following that Assyrian captivity up as far as Iran, the northern ten tribes from there migrated 
up into Western Europe and on beyond, on into the British Isles. And his book focused primarily on the two birthright tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim had been prophesied to become a great commonwealth of nations, thus becoming Great Britain and her commonwealth, the greatest empire the world has ever seen. And Manasseh had been prophesied to become a singular great superpower. And that is, of course, the brother nation to Britain, that is the United States of America. And of course, again, the tribe of Judah is represented by the Jews around the world, specifically the Jewish nation of Israel in the Middle East. But what about the other tribes? That's just Ephraim, Manasseh, and Judah. What about the other tribes of Israel. Here's what Mr. Armstrong says in his book, page 108, quote, We lack space for a detailed explanation of the specific identity of all these other tribes in the nations of our 20th century. Suffice it here to say that there is ample evidence that these other eight tribes have descended into such northwestern European nations as Holland, Belgium, Denmark, northern France, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway. The people of Iceland are also of Viking stock. The political boundaries of Europe, as they exist today, do not necessarily show lines of division between descendants of these original tribes of Israel. And as we've been going through in these programs, we've looked at how certain tribes are largely represented by certain nations. As Mr. Armstrong says, though, there is some overlap. There is a Swedish element in Finland. There is a strong French contingent, Reubenite contingent in Ephraimite Canada. Northern France rather than southern France is more representative of the descendants of Reuben. Uh, You've got Belgium and Switzerland, both have their linguistic divides. So there there are some differences within the countries themselves. Again, as Mr. Armstrong says, uh, the political boundaries do not necessarily show the lines of division between these descendants. But by and large, generally speaking, we've covered the general representative nations for each of the 12 tribes, nations whose overall character matches that prophesied for each of the 12 tribes in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33. And we've got two tribes left to discuss in this series, that's Simeon and Levi. And I've left these two for last. Why? Because these tribes were prophesied to be different. They were prophesied to be scattered among and within Israel, unlike the other tribes which do hold together and largely represent independent national identities, as we've covered in the series. These two tribes, though, Simeon and Levi, they would be scattered among them. So today, let's examine the tribes of Simeon and Levi and how they became dominated within other tribes and We'll also primarily examine the evidence for a significant population of them within the Celtic nations of Scotland and Wales. We'll cover, again, these two tribes together on this program, uh, unlike the others, because, unlike the other tribes, the foundation and prophecy of these two tribes are discussed together in Genesis 49. Both tribes in this chapter are roundly condemned, at the start for participating in a, in a really bloody massacre. But as we'll see as the story unfolds, the destiny of each of these tribes would turn out to be very different and would represent how 
uh, despite our beginnings, our own choices determine our outcomes. So let's start in Genesis 49 and verse 5. Here we read this prophecy for the last days. Quote, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not yet thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So here for these two tribes, we've got a very different outlook compared to the others who who do largely stay together and have these uh, sort of national identities. Here we've got something very different for Simeon and Levi. So to begin with, why this prophetic condemnation for these two tribes? It follows a foundational event that directly involved these two tribal patriarchs. So let's briefly review a summary of the story that centers around Jacob's daughter, Dinah. The story is found in Genesis 34. Dinah, uh, she's speculated as being about 16 years old at this point. She sets out to see the daughters of the land of Shechem, uh, which is within which Jacob had moved to and had bought land from the Shechemites. Now, the historian Josephus describes her attending a pagan festival in Shechem. And while in the land, the prince of that land, Shechem, the son of Hamor, quote, took her and lay with her and defiled her. Now, the Hebrew uh, language in this verse shows that Shechem raped her. Now, the following verses then explain Shechem's love for Dinah, and following that incident, his kind words and his desire to marry her. Then we see Shechem's father, Hamor, who goes down to see Jacob and and to ask him for Dinah on behalf of his son. Jacob's sons, though, were obviously furious about the incident, but nevertheless the sons agreed that the clans of Israel and Shechem could marry each other's daughters as long as the Shechemite men were circumcised. And this was agreed to, and it was carried out on the men of Shechem. Now, on the third day after the circumcision, the men of the city of Shechem were at their weakest. Verse verse 25 reads, And it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword, and came upon the city unawares, and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house, and went forth and spoiled the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their asses, and that which was in the city that and that which was in the field, and all their wealth, and all their little ones and their wives, took they captive and spoiled, even all that was in the house. End quote. So utter slaughter and robbery here, all at the hands of Simeon and Levi, and probably a small army of their personal servants. The story concludes, quote, And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me odious unto the inhabitants of the land, even unto the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And they said, Should one deal with our sister as with a harlot? End quote. Uh, 
So that's, uh, in brief summary, the foundational account of Levi and Simeon. And sure, what happened to Dinah was an absolute disgrace. But the reaction of these tribal patriarchs was mass murder, deception, pillaging, and abduction. And this was such a disgrace that Jacob feared his family would be wiped out by the surrounding Canaanite people. So it was this foundational act that factored into the prophecy of these tribes in Genesis 49, verses 5 to 7. Phrases like Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. In their anger, they slew a man. In their self-will, cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. So we've got violence, emotional, confrontational, murderous actions here. In the last part of this verse, quote, they digged down a wall. It's an odd use of, uh, of an odd translation, different from almost all other translations, which instead read, they hocked an ox. So they, they hocked an ox. And this may be an allusion to Hamor, uh, the father of Shechem, whose name means or refers to a, a, a male donkey. So it was, after all, this individual that Jacob had bought his land from. And as a result of their actions, Simeon and Levi were prophesied to be divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. So let's focus on these tribes individually from this point forward, starting with Simeon. Now, following this incident with Dinah, the next significant biblical mention of the patriarch Simeon is his imprisonment in Egypt at the hand of his brother Joseph. This was after Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, and Joseph had risen to number two in power in the land. Joseph had disguised himself uh, from his long-estranged brothers who, who had come to Egypt with the desire to buy food during a famine. He had disguised himself from them, and he, kept, he actually kept Simeon in a prison as a sort of a surety until the arrival of all his brothers into the land. Now, according to Jewish tradition, this act was because Simeon had originally proposed for Joseph to be killed. Uh, before the decision was made to sell him into slavery. Jewish tradition also says that Simeon especially was long spiteful toward Joseph and that he, Simeon, was the one who pushed him into the well where he was held until he was sold uh, to the slave traders. Now fast forward to the Israelite sojourn in the wilderness. We have the Israelite masses leaving Egypt and we come to the sojourn in the wilderness, and not much detail is mentioned about the Simeonites. Uh, it's what isn't mentioned that is interesting. In Numbers 1, we have a census at the start of the sojourn, first census of the Israelites, and Simeon is listed as the third largest tribe by the numbers of available military men. They only counted the available military men, not the entire tribes themselves. So by that uh, metric, they had just over 59,000 men, the third largest tribe. Fast forward now to the last census of their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness in Numbers 26, and we see a very different picture. Comparatively, the numbers of all of the tribes uh, haven't changed dramatically, apart from two tribes, the tribe of Manasseh, which has much more individuals 
uh, at the end than at the start, and the tribe of Simeon, which has far less. In fact, the Simeon population has dropped to nearly a third of what it was at the start of the Exodus. We started out with 59,000 military men, down now to only 22,000 at the end. And further to this point, at the start of the sojourn, there are six sub-tribes of Simeon. But by the end, we have only five sub-tribes listed. So something happened to Simeon in the wilderness. There are some theories as to why this tribe almost evaporated. One is that it was because the tribe was the most rebellious and that it suffered the most punishment during the the various plagues that struck the Israelites. And that could be the case. But to lose nearly 40,000 military men, and that's just the men. What about however many women or children besides that? Really, uh, there could have been up to 100,000 to, I don't know, 150,000 people that were lost here. So what happened to the tribe of Simeon? Besides the Genesis 49 prophecy about the tribes, on this program we refer quite a lot to uh, Moses' uh, Deuteronomy 33 prophecy about the tribes. This is sort of a parallel prophetic passage. But have you noticed that in this passage, Deuteronomy 33, the the passage of prophetic blessings, there is no mention of the tribe of Simeon. They're not mentioned at all in this chapter. Fast forward again into the promised land. In the book of Joshua, we see the tribe of Simeon, or what was left of them, given territory within Judah, completely enveloped within another tribe. And even then, Joshua 19 verse 9 hints that Simeon received this allotment because Judah had too much land, not simply for the sake of Simeon. The tribe of Simeon is mentioned among the fewest amount of times of any tribe in the Bible. First uh, Chronicles 4 verse 27 describes one of the Simeonite clans, and it says, This clan had not many children, neither did all their family multiply like the children of Judah. Verse 31 of the same chapter describes Simeonite territory that was held, quote, unto the reign of David. So something happened on beyond. Verses, uh, verses 41 onwards describe some small Simeonite clashes in the distant territories of the Hamites and the Amalekites and their migration into those areas. So there was some scattering around with whatever remained of Simeon. But beyond the split, that split of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Simeon essentially disappears from view. What happened? And especially, what could have happened in the wilderness that shrunk down the numbers of this tribe so greatly? There is an incident that may give us a clue. Numbers 25 describes a plot that was hatched by foreign forces to try and bring curses and uh, ruin on the Israelites. The Moabites and the Midianites at the, at the uh, planning and behest of Balaam the prophet, they sent their women to the men of Israel to woo them and to lead them astray into sin and into paganism. And as a result of this, it was a very successful plan. As a result, a plague spread through Israel, and every Israelite that had uh, defiled himself with these women was put to death. This was no minor event. 
A total of uh, 24,000 people died as a result of it. And in one of the famous final acts of this plague, there was a prince of the tribe of Simeon that brandished his Midianite mistress, I guess you could call her. He brandished her in front of the weeping congregation and went into his tent with her to have relations with her. Then the Levite Phineas followed them in and he skewered them right through with a spear. And this act ended the plague. And here you have a distinct separation between Simeon and Levi. The uh, actions of a representative of Simeon versus a a representative of Levi. So here you have one of the highest figures in the Simeonite community executed. Based on this, it's been speculated that uh, it was largely the tribe of Simeon that was affected, uh, that committed a large part of the sin uh, at this time, and thus bore the brunt of the deaths. But even with this, though, with a loss of, if if we were to assume 24,000 people were only from the tribe of Simeon, even then, we wouldn't come close to making up the difference of the missing population of the tribe. So another theory is that because of this killing of the Simeonite prince, a large part of the tribe rebelled and left the Israelite camp to emigrate elsewhere. And that they left and departed for Greece, for the Greek Isles, joining the Danite contingent living in the Greek Isles, the Greek territory. We've talked about that Danite uh, presence in Greece on our program on Dan and the tribe of Ireland, uh, tribe of Dan and Ireland, and you can look up that podcast on WatchJerusalem.co.il. So the theory goes that the Simeonite contingent uh, left the the Israelite base and separated and and went off to join essentially their Danite brothers in and around the area of Greece, settling in the land that became later known as Sparta. Yes, you heard that right, the Simeonites becoming the Spartans of early ancient history, or at least a significant element of them. Now, this might sound crazy at first, Uh, it, it did to me, but bear with me, there are a couple of reasons for this option. Josephus documents a letter that was sent from the Spartan leader during the Hellenistic period to the Jewish high priest at the time. And this letter, which was also recorded in the books of Maccabees, it stated that the Spartans had, quote, met with a certain writing whereby we have discovered that both the Jews and the Spartans are of one stock and are derived from the kindred of Abraham, end quote. So that was a quote from a letter from Uh, the Spartan leader to the leader of the Jews. And what a surprise this letter would have been. The the remarkable Spartan letter names the Jews as their long-lost brothers, and it offers any aid or service that the Jews might need. Now, I'll just say in passing, the Jewish reply uh, from that high priest that politely declined to get involved with uh, any uh, exchange of war, help and warfare between the Jews and the Spartans, uh, but, but really a remarkable letter here from the Spartans claiming brotherhood with the Jews. Now, the Spartans are known as being non-native to Greece. 
the Spartans were unusual and that they celebrated new moons and the seventh day of the month, uh, which could relate to the seventh day observations in, in Israel, the Jewish Sabbath. Now, the ancient historian Herodotus writes that the Spartans were of Egyptian origin, which that would also fit given that the Simeonites had just migrated out of Egypt, and essentially the same is said of that Danite contingent in Greece, that they're of Egyptian origin. The Spartans need no introduction as a militaristic society. Their entire way of life, their education, their upbringing, their society, marriage, laws, it was all built around the military, and they were famously brutal, aggressive, uh, Paul Cartilage writes in his book, The Spartans, quote, Male Spartan citizens were forbidden any other trade, profession, or business than war. End quote. Indeed, all other mundane aspects of life were, uh, were taken care of by a massive slave population, while the Spartan women took care of property and birthing new warriors. Again, to quote excerpts of Genesis 49 regarding Simeon, quote, weapons of warfare are in their swords, are their swords. In their anger, they murdered men. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. So this passage of scripture certainly could fit with, uh, with the Spartans or an early contingent of Spartans that settled in that land. And it would make sense uh, uh, for the Simeonites to make up a contingent in ancient Greece alongside that Danite contingent, the Danan, the tribe of Dan, uh, that had those links with the uh, later Israelites who settled in the Promised Land. Because as as we covered, these Danites migrated into Ireland as the Tuahadi Danan migration, as we've covered, and so too did another tribe. Another tribe similarly migrated by sea, into the west coast of England. So you've got the Tuahadi Danan migrating into Ireland, and you've also got another tribe similarly migrating into the west coast of England, and this tribe is known as the Simoni tribe, the Simoni. And Simoni is exactly the same as the Hebrew Shimoni. The, the Hebrew word Shimoni uh, means Simeonite. Simeon in Hebrew is properly pronounced Shimon. So Shimoni is Simeonite, and here you have this uh, invasion into England or, or settlement into England of this tribe of Simoni. So the Simoni migration into the general region around Celtic Wales claimed to have taken place around the time of the Danan migration into Ireland. And to this day, you have that real Celtic divide in the so-called United Kingdom. You've got the Anglo-Saxon Ephraimites, as we've covered in an earlier program, that migrated into the land alongside the other different Celtic races inhabiting Wales, Scotland, Cornwall. You have the division of language as well, with the Cornish, Welsh, Scottish, Irish languages completely distinct from that of the Anglo-Saxons. Now, again, we do have this small contingent of Simeon that continued on in the Promised Land. But the last chronological mention of the Simeonite people in the land of Israel is during the days of King Azar. This is around the end of the 10th century BCE, and then they pretty much fall off the map. 
Uh, this reference of them is in Second Chronicles 15, and it actually associates the Simeonites with the northern kingdom of uh, kingdom tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Dr. Herman Hay speculated that following the sep- separation of the northern ten tribes, the Simeonites up and left to the northern kingdom, again originally in Judah, and then following the breakup of the two kingdoms, they moved to the northern kingdom of Israel. After all, uh, only two tribes are highlighted as making up that southern kingdom of Judah, and that's the Jews and the Benjamites, and they also had a portion of the tribe of Levi. But it seems that many of these Simeonites were left uh, in the land, migrated north, perhaps into these tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Of course, as we cover so often on these programs, these northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria. The Bible records their deportation up as far as Iran. The Assyrians didn't call them the kingdom of Israel, though. They called them by a different name. They called them the House of Qumri after one of the earlier Israelite kings. So these people, they referred to as Qumri, were deported up into the region of northern Iran, end of the 8th century BCE, and it's around this point in secular history that a civilization comes on the scene known as the Cimmerians. These people are known to have migrated uh, up into Asia Minor. They uh, are believed to have come from the region of Iran. The Cimmerians were known to the Greeks as Cimmeroi, the Babylonians as Gimeri, and historians have connected the Welsh term Kimri to them. So these people became known, uh, became what is commonly known as the Celts, uh, separately referred to as the Kimri, Kimbri, Gimiri, Kumri, Celtic people. And even today, the Celtic country of Wales is named in the Welsh language Kimri. So this migration swept across Europe and came into Britain from the east, and we do find reference to one tribe known as Simoni appearing in the east of ancient Britain, perhaps around the time of the Romans. These Simoni might have joined their other fellow clan members, the Simoni in Scotland and Wales, as those Anglo-Saxons pushed into the country and thus taking the name Kimri to Wales with them. And so we start to get a picture of a, of a heavy preponderance of this tribe of Simeon in Britain, eventually becoming subjects of the English crown. Simoni from the west, Simoni from the southeast, uh, and uh, coming together as, uh, as a heavy presence of Simeonites in Britain. But it would make sense for the Simeonites to be scattered in and subservient to English rule. We've mentioned that Simeon was associated directly with uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Again, that was in Chronicles that associates these tribes together. And Genesis 49 prophesies that Simeon would be scattered within Israel. As we've covered in the past, the name Israel refers primarily to these two birthright tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh as per Genesis 48. Uh, Prophecies of Israel in the Bible primarily refer to the birthright nations of the United States and Britain, Manasseh and Ephraim, and modern-day Judah in the Bible refers to the Jews. 
Thus, to read of these Simeonites being scattered in prophetic Israel, we could expect to see a particular concentration of them within Ephraim and Manasseh. And along these lines, it was also the father of Ephraim and Manasseh. It was Joseph that held Simeon prisoner in Egypt. And so we see a similar situation today with the countries of Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, all dominated and ruled from by England in these last days under the British crown. And massive numbers of Scots and Welsh also emigrated to America, modern-day Manasseh. Now, the Scots may be the primary representatives of these Simeonites today. Again, they are a scattered tribe. The tribe of Simeon is a scattered tribe, but Scotland could be considered as primarily representative of them. According to Jewish tradition, the symbol of the tribe of Simeon flown on their tribal flag was a castle, or a castle and a sword. And in Scotland, flags and heraldry symbols of castles or castles overlaid with swords are found all over the country. There's the Edinburgh flag, which features a prominent castle image. There's the Aberdeen flag, which features three castles on a red background. There's even a municipality in the Netherlands, named after a Scottish princess, whose flag is the classic blue and white saltire overlaid with a castle emblem. Now, the Scots have long been known as Britain's fiercest fighters. They're Britain's warrior tribe. They have been used as the sharp edge of Britain's armed forces, representing some of Britain's finest soldiers. German troops notably called these Scottish forces the ladies from hell, thanks to their fearsome courage and the kilts that they wore. So the Scots are known for their toughness, their violence, their emotions, just like the tribal patriarch. Genesis 49 describes their self-will, and that tough-as-nails spirit can be seen in some of the most daring adventurers around, uh, around the world that hail from Scotland, adventurers that have traveled all around the world, explorers, uh, same, same thing from Wales, uh, David Livingston and Henry Morton Stanley come immediately to mind. And remember that Simeon was originally allotted territory inside of Judah. Genetic testing in, uh, by Scotsman Donald Yates found that one in eight Scots have Jewish blood. Scotland has been named as the only European nation never to persecute the Jews. Uh, the land appears to have some, been somewhat of a place of refuge for the Jews during the English persecutions uh, in the Middle Ages. And we'll mention the Jewish connection further on down with regard to red hair. Now, in speaking of the British territories, we have to mention Northern Ireland. An element of ancient Scots migrated down into the northern part of Ireland, and this group were known as the Tuatha Simon, meaning tribe of Simon or, or tribe of Simeon. Northern Ireland, a staunchly proud, militaristic people, also have a strong link with the tribe of Judah. The symbol on the, the Northern Ireland flag is the red hand, which features front and center, and around it is a six-pointed star, almost exactly like the Jewish Star of David. 
So this red hand symbol has been linked back to the biblical account of one of the patriarch Judah's sons found in Genesis 38. This son, he was a twin named Zara. He was identified by a red thread that was tied around his hand at birth. So these descendants of Zara, Zara of the Red Hand, you could call him, they had their own separate migration. We won't go into that on this program, but you can read about it in Mr. Armstrong's book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy. So we have a Red Hand symbol centered within a Star of David, displayed with a royal crown above the top point, representing the British crown, the British throne, a throne ruled by as we've covered in earlier programs, the descendants of David of the line of Judah. It's a really fascinating flag, the Northern Ireland flag. If you haven't seen it before, Google the flag of Northern Ireland. But back to Scotland. Of course, Scotland is not exclusively of the tribe of Simeon. There's a heavy Viking influence in the land uh, relating to, for example, the tribe of Benjamin, You can listen to our program on Norway for more information about the tribe of Benjamin. So several of the northernmost regions of Scotland fly these Nordic flags. And again, there's a strong Jewish element and even a Danite element in Scotland. And you can read about that in the United States and Britain and Prophecy, page 103. Further, there appears to have been a strong Manassite element from Scotland as well, among those that migrated from Scotland to America. And as we covered on our program on Manasseh, they, the Manassites were to be sifted like wheat, making sure that the, the Manassites were sifted from the other countries, such as Scotland, uh, England, to their new land. Again, an apparent preponderance, though, of Simeon in Scotland, but divided and among other tribes. And there might be an indication of this in Genesis 49 verse 6 with the phrase, quote, Be not thou united. That's been one of the primary problems with Scotland. It's division. Scotland historically has repeatedly tried to throw off English rule. It's been a virtually impossible task given the animosity between the different clans themselves Within Scotland, you have the problem of several clans in the Middle Ages vying for preeminence among each other and for the throne of Scotland, killing and murdering each other, some supportive of the English, some not, the country finding it almost impossible to put on a united front against the sheer power of the British rule. And probably the most famous and horrific of these frequent clan disputes is the mass murder incident of the Campbells and the MacDonalds. But that's, again, another story, and I'll let you look that up on your own. But even to that, this day, that division over independence, independence uh, plagues Scotland. There was the recent 2014 independence referendum, Uh, The Decision of a Generation, it was called, which split 45% in favor of independence, 55% in favor of staying a part of the Union, and the status quo thus remains to this day. But despite all this, Scotland played a major role in the prophesied transferal of the throne of David from Ireland through Scotland to England. Together with Jacob's pillar stone, the stone of destiny, multiple rulers reigned from that throne while it was in Scotland before it was transferred to England. And that's another story again, though. Please do request 
the United States and Britain and Prophecy for more information on that. Right, we'll take a short break there, and when we come back, we'll briefly look at what happened to Simeon's scattered brother tribe, the tribe of Levi. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. We've been covering the modern identity of the tribes of Simeon and Levi on this program. And if you're listening to this podcast over the radio and you've missed the first half of the podcast, be sure to check it out on watchjerusalem.co.il. We've been examining the migration of the Simeonites into the British Isles, and we've seen that primarily with the arrival of the tribes of Simoni into the west of England as well as into the southeast. And now in the time remaining, we'll briefly turn our attention to the Levites, to the tribe of Levi. We've covered the foundational act of violence that the patriarchs Simeon and Levi participated in, as described in uh, Genesis uh, 34 and Genesis 49. And both patriarchs were roundly condemned by Jacob in that Genesis 49 prophecy of the 12 tribes. Both were destined to be scattered in Israel. But we do see a difference in these two tribes, though, and in the way that their history played out highlighting the choices in life, the choices one has in life and shaping one's destiny. We we see the tribe of Levi in the Bible actually significantly turning to God and looking to him and receiving great favor. And in the incident, as we mentioned with the Midianite woman, uh, while it was notably the Simeonite side that let Israel down, it was a, a Levite representative who put an end to it. Now, both tribes were rash and emotional right at the foundation there, but it seems that Simeon, in particular, was the more angry, brutal, emotional of the tribes, while Levi, on the other hand, still a heavy-handed tribe, perhaps more had a focus on intolerance, which would then play into their role as the priestly tribe. Now, as we know from the biblical account, This tribe, the tribe of Levi, was dedicated to serve as the priestly tribe, dedicated to the service of God. They weren't given a tribal allotment in the land, but they were assigned Levite cities from which they would serve uh, within other tribes of Israel. Now, when the northern kingdom of Israel separated during the reign of Rehoboam, as we've covered, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin stuck together making up the southern kingdom of Judah, but so too, in large part, did the Levites. And so thus, Judah, a large part of Benjamin, and a large part of Levi became collectively known as Jews, those of the kingdom of Judah. And that's why in the book of Nehemiah, we read of genealogies of only those of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi who came back following the captivity of the Babylonians to rebuild Jerusalem, because the other tribes, of course, the lost tribes of Israel, had long before been scattered and had migrated away. So a significant portion of the tribe of Levi can be found among the Jews today and in the modern Middle Eastern nation of Israel. 
One of the most famous Jewish surnames is the name Kohen, a Levitical name meaning priest. It has also been speculated that uh, many of the people God uses in ministerial positions may be of Levitical descent. Mr. Armstrong mentions that in his book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy. And you can take a listen to our program on the tribe of Judah for more information about these Jews and what happened to them. That's on watchjerusalem.co.il. But for this program, we're looking specifically at the lost tribes of Simeon and Levi, the lost element of those tribes. Because, as we've covered, a significant population of Levites were scattered throughout the northern tribes, and these would have been caught up in the Assyrian deportations. So where did they go? Where did these Levites go? Well, as with their brother tribe of Simeon, it would appear that a good representation of them went to the British Isles. And if Simeon can be more closely represented with Scotland, then perhaps Levi can be more closely represented by Wales. As we've covered, Simeon was prophesied to be scattered within Israel, and we've mentioned the, ter- the use of the term Israel in the Bible and how that symbolically emphasizes Ephraim and Manasseh, the birthright tribes of Israel, Britain, and America. So we've looked at that scattering of Simeon, particularly in Scotland. So should we not expect, likewise, to find the Levites, of whom were prophesied exactly the same thing, the same scattering, together with Simeon, for there to be a significant population of them within Britain? Uh, specifically within that final landmass attached to and ruled by England, the country of Wales. Now, anciently, the tribe of Levi was a choral tribe. They were a priestly tribe, but with a heavy emphasis on singing and choral divisions. They were a musical tribe with divisions of choir singers and instrumentalists. And Wales is often referred to as the land of song. It's widely known especially for its choirs, especially male choirs, and it's also known for its harpists. Now, both these, the male choirs, the harpists, are deeply Israelite and deeply Levite attributes. And Cornwall is also known just south there of Wales uh, on that peninsula. Cornwall is known for these traits as well, a strong folk music tradition along with the male choirs. Now, Wales also claims one of the oldest unbroken literary traditions in all of Europe. They have a long line of preserved writings and authors and a special emphasis on poetry. And this too shouldn't be surprising because writing is another notably Levite domain here. Now, the Welsh country of all the modern Israelite nations has perhaps the closest accurate name tie with ancient Israel. In the Welsh language, the country is called Kimri, and we've talked about Kimri being the Assyrian name for the northern kingdom of Israel, Bet Kumri or the House of Kumri. Wales, on the other hand, Wales, the name itself, is a Germanic name for this people, and this name originally had a broader meaning. It was used during the Roman times to refer to inhabitants of the Western Roman Empire, the portions that, as we know, refer to uh, inhabitants of Israel that were populated by Israel. And there are ancient records from the first century BCE onwards documenting a Celtic tribe called Levi, 
migrating around the northern end of Italy. It's variously spelled as Levi or Levi. And it's interesting that there's a related term for whales in the Hebrew Germanic language of Yiddish. In the language of Yiddish, the term Velsh, a related word, is used to describe Sephardic Jews, Jews of Western Europe, particularly of Spain, Velsh as a reference to Jews. And if you look at the singular variant of Wales, Whale, or the Germanic Val, it's close to the inverse of the word Levi. And Hebrew, of course, is spelled in the opposite direction. So perhaps there's even a connection there. There's also a connection here with, in terms of name with the people of Cornwall, because this name divides into two parts, corn and wall, wall being a form of our whale or val, and corn being the Indo-European word for horn. So corn meaning horn, and is it any surprise that the Hebrew word for horn is almost exactly the same, spelled with those hard K-R-N consonants? Keren in Hebrew, corn, keren, wall. And the Cornish language has closest ties to the Welsh language. Genetic research has pointed to the especially close ties between the Cornish and Welsh people. Uh, And in fact, Cornwall used to be known to the Anglo-Saxons as West Wales to distinguish it from North Wales, which is the modern territory of Wales. Now, along the eastern border of ancient Cornwall along that peninsula, kind of bordering it on the east, ran the river Tamar, or Tamar. So Tamar, of course, is a Hebrew name. And in Roman times, there was a settlement along the river named Tamaris. The book of Ezekiel talks about borders between the tribes of Israel. And Ezekiel 48 verse 28 mentions a tribal border, quote, even from Tamar unto the waters of strife. Now, this is a future prophecy about something different, but it was written some 2,600 years ago, and it's interesting that here you see an Israelite tribe with a border of Tamar in relation to waters. But back to Wales. Besides the names, the Welsh language also has many close similarities with the Hebrew language, and the country of Wales has long had a close relationship with the Jewish people. The two most famous symbols, uh, most famous and common symbols of Wales are the dragon and the leek. And we find these two symbols in the Bible together as well. Isaiah 35 verse 7, various translations, they talk about leeks and dragons in the very same scripture, prophesying about Israel's lush future. So perhaps there's another link here. One final point about the Welsh, the Scots, and the Irish, and this is to do with redheads. There's a stereotype of Irish redheads, but actually Scotland has the highest percentage, with 13% of the population being redheads, and an estimated 40%, carrying the genes. Now, around 10% of Welsh and Irish populations are, are redheaded, And the majority of these Irish are in the north of the island, Northern Ireland and Northwest Ireland. So here we've got Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland as our significant uh, preponderance of redheaded people. And we've mentioned the migration of the Scots to this area. 
now of of Northern Ireland. So a close connection here between Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Now Jewish midrash tradition holds that red hair was common among the tribes of Simeon and Levi. And this this tradition was taken to the point that one 19th century Jewish commentator wrote that most of the high priests had red hair. And I'm sure you've heard of the classic stereotype of redheads having a fiery temper. But guess what? That's exactly what the tribes of Levi and Simeon were named for. And so maybe there's some ancestral truth behind that stereotype. Now, where do we find redheaded people around the world? I've mentioned the the predominance of them in Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales. But it's virtually exclusively among Israelite nations that we find redheaded people. It's practically a marker of Israelite DNA, really, uh, primarily in the northern and western fringes of Europe, especially within the British Isles and, again, in particular, in the Celtic nations. The story is completely different in non-Israelite foreign nations with just fractions of percentages. But there is a high level of redheads among Jews. Some 6% of Polish Jews were found to have red hair. 11% of all Jewish men with red beards. It's such an Israelite trait that in the Spanish Inquisition, those identified with red hair were automatically considered Jewish. And remember that a large population of Israelites made up the Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah, and that Simeon was also originally within that southern kingdom of Judah. So this is a distinctly Israelite marker and identified in Jewish traditions, particularly with the tribes of Levi and Simeon. And where do we find it? Among the Jews, the Irish, Scots, and Welsh. And again, the stereotypes run deep across different cultures and historical accounts that redheads are fiery, daring, high-tempered, mischievous, strong, adventurous, all traits that particularly match of all the tribal patriarchs with Simeon and Levi. All right, we've run out of time on this program, but I'll leave some links on the podcast page uh, on our website that describe the importance of of Scotland and Wales as part of the United Kingdom. One of these articles is entitled, Without Scotland, There is No Great Britain, referencing the Scottish independence referendum and the disunity within the United Kingdom. And there's a lot of disunity, a lot of disagreement, brokenness within the United Kingdom, within Scotland itself, within Wales itself, England itself. And as we repeatedly talk about on this program, all of that is the result of sin, turning away from God. And the Bible foretells that one final major conflict is to befall the nations of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, as punishment for our people's turning away from God. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 calls this a time of tribulation for the end-time descendants of Jacob like none ever experienced before. The worst so far that has befallen our nations has been World War II. And so if we are to consider the Bible true, this coming time has to be even worse. And in all of it, God is seeking repentance and humility from his people who once knew him, from his chosen people, something our stubborn nations find difficult to swallow. 
More difficult, uh, more detail on the subject can be found in our free book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, and I'll leave a link to that on our podcast page as well. But there is good news on beyond that, because the Bible prophesies that the coming Messiah will save our humbled peoples and will lead us to heights of power and strength like never before. And the tribes of Simeon and of Levi are prophesied to be among that resurgence. We'll conclude with one final scripture from Second Chronicles 15, verse 19, that describes that rule of the Judahite king Asa, and it names the tribes that joined him in a sort of righteous allegiance at that time. It almost reads like a who's who of the United Kingdom. England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, quote, Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Well, with the conclusion of this program, we're coming to the end of our series on the 12 tribes of Israel. We've covered all of the tribes and their modern-day counterparts, and we've got one more program planned for the series. It's an overall look at the modern identity of the 12 tribes and why this modern identity of lost Israel is so important. If you have any questions or feedback, you can email that to us at letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Thank you for listening and take care.